0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith Produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wave. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let's begin by praying together. God, we are not a mighty people. We never have been and we never will be in and of ourselves. We are not self-reliant and tough and strong and of good blood. We are many who are weak, foolish, foolish those who are not esteemed in the eyes of the world, and that's okay. God, we don't preach the gospel of self-reliance here and grit according to the world's standards. We preach Christ and Him crucified this morning, the one who gave Himself so that we might know the Father and so that we might know redemption through the atoning blood of Christ. That is our firm foundation this morning, and we do not move from it. By your grace, we ask that you would keep us centered on this and nothing else. We ask this morning that you would teach us to trust you, that we would in faith ask you for this wisdom that we need so that we might live in a world full of various trials, that we might then come forth steadfast and that steadfast would have its perfecting work in our heart to make us whole and complete, lacking nothing, so that it all might be to the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. So this morning we ask God that you'd open our ears, that we would hear. We ask that we would look into the mirror, not walk away unchanged, but rather look into this perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere so that we might be doers, not just hearers only. This is a work that you do in us, God, and we, we claim the promises that you will complete the work in us that you've begun. We love you and treasure you this morning through the preaching of the word and ask that Jesus Christ would be exalted. In your name, amen. Let's start out with a question today for us. Um, I want you to consider it. I don't have to actually answer, but I want you to consider it. Are you willing, as Jesus said, to come to him as a child? You and I both know what a child needs in his life, Everything. <laughs> I can remember the day, the actual afternoon, it was the afternoon of July 8th, 2010, I pulled my white 1999 Buick Regal up to the curb at Santa Lee Hospital, the place where many of you have been before. Um, there was a nurse pushing a wheelchair containing my wife and my brand new baby girl. She had been born the night before, the day before, July 7th, 2010. And as I pulled up, uh, I realized that we had experienced one full day of being parents. We know what it was to be parents. And these crazy people at the hospital who had waited on us hand and foot, Kristen and the baby, uh, they were getting ready to all of a sudden release us to the dark, cruel world outside the walls of their ever-present care. I helped Kristen get into the front seat. Uh, We strapped the the newborn car seat back in the middle, back behind us with great care. Um, And the nurse courteously waved goodbye, turned, and walked back into the hospital like she was leaving two people who had never gone to astronaut school in their new spacesuits and get dropped off at the moon. That is what we felt like because we realized that all those doctors and nurses were saying, bye, now it's your turn to do it. And as I walked around, shut the door, and, and, and came back to the front seat, I, I did a lot of growing up very quickly. I think I became an adult because I realized it was no longer me in this seat and Kristen sitting in this seat and all the stuff that we had to do, which was very little. But now we had grown by 50%. We add a new soul in the back seat that we were to care for and love and make live and thrive even. And as I, as I again, I clicked in and pulled out in Kempsville. I'm like, what are they doing? How could they have let us do this to this beautiful little person that we are supposed to take care of? Um, nothing really changed from the time that we left our hospital bed to the time we got in the car and onto, onto the, on the road. But we know what that baby needed, everything. <laughs> she needed everything. She could do nothing in and of herself. There was absolutely nothing that she could do to survive on her own. She needed me and Kristen to do everything for her, left by herself. If I had left her completely by herself, she would have died almost immediately. Today, as we sit here, we think about my daughter now who has walked out. She's seven years old, Afton, almost eight. She's very capable and sweet and wonderful, but she still has her daily needs that need to be met by her parents. She still comes to her parents to ask for those things that she needs because she's a child. She needs them fulfilled. In Matthew 18.3, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. No one of us really wants to be called childish or immature or someone who has to rely on someone else for what they need. And yet Jesus, in his great wisdom and ultimate understanding of reality, uses the analogy for us to become children and says that this is what it's supposed to be like. He describes us then as this is our, we are supposed to be single and sincere trust in the author of our faith, the one who can keep us alive and thrive. We are to approach him with no dignity of our own. We sang, be thou my dignity and be thou my might. That's because we have none of our own. Knowing that we must ask for what we need because we know that there is no other way to properly receive it except from his hand. If you remember back to the first sermon, as we began James, we said that James wrote in a very cyclical pattern. I used that illustration of sitting on a bench at Bush Gardens watching the carousel turn round and round. And we noticed that a horse would come by, and then it would come by again, and then we'd see it again, and then we'd start to notice another horse, and the same thing would happen. It's because James writes, and he brings up a topic, and then he'll go away. And then it'll come back again, and it'll go away. Last week, we spent time looking at the first of these topics. There's three major themes through the book of James. The first that we covered last week was that of steadfastness. We learned that steadfastness, which makes us perfect and complete and whole, comes through the testing of our faith, which comes from meeting various trials of different kinds. And so when we fall among various trials, we ought to rejoice. We ought to consider these trials as pure joy. They are God's faith-testing work of steadfastness in us. And praise God, he takes steadfastness and works in us, wholeness, perfection, completion, lacking in nothing. Today, as we sit on that bench again and we watch this carousel spin, we're going to be introduced to the second horse, the second theme, that of wisdom. So we talked about steadfastness to start off. as now starting to go away. We're going to start talking about wisdom. So let's look at these verses. We need to ask some questions. We need to answer these questions. We need to draw some conclusions. And then I promise that some of these conclusions, and as we do this, what happens is that it kind of leads us to glory in Jesus Christ. And if we don't do that today, we've totally missed the idea of being the Christian church. This is not the church of us. This is the church of Jesus Christ, blood-bought for our sake, for the glory of his name. And for his sake alone, not for us, but for our good, but for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll do this morning. Let's start. If you're looking down, then let's look at verse 5 and we'll begin. It says this If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we start here, and if you remember where we just were, this seems almost strange. Where did this statement about wisdom come from? It seems out of place and like all of a sudden, boom, hit the wisdom. We were just talking about steadfastness and trials and wholeness and and we jump right to a discussion about wisdom. Like what's the connection here? Or maybe should we be asking, is there a connection? If you remember when we first introduced the book, we realized that a lot of people think of the book of James as <clears throat> New Testament Proverbs where all these different ideas are thrown in and they're just kind of muddled together to create a book of good sayings and and good information for us. So my question then is, is there actually a connection between verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4 and 5 through 8, this idea of wisdom? So this is what it says here, though. I want us to make sure that we see something important because he uses a rhetorical device, a way of speaking or a way of writing that's to help us. If you notice how James ended verse 4, you'll notice that he uses a special word that kind of ties it to verse 5. That word is lack. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. The connection here is actually significant. It helps us to see what he's trying to do. He's helping to take us from this topic into this one. But why? Again, he sees this and says, I want to take you from trials, testing of your faith, steadfastness, wholeness, and now we're going to transition into wisdom. So the question is, what's the connection then? Why is that a connection that he says this and now into this? Some of you may have come in here today, like me, after hearing and thinking about last week's sermon as we looked at chapter 1, 2 through 4, and you may be considering this acting out and, and reckoning Trials is pure joy, and you say to yourself, okay, I believe, I do, because the Bible says that it's true, so I do believe this, but I cannot for the life of me understand how it's true. I believe it, and I want to believe it, but I don't know how this works together. How can trials be considered pure joy? I know that he tells me to do it, but I live in the real world, and it is tough. I don't understand how this could possibly actually work together. What's the connection then? I'm not at all sure also about what I should do in my life. Uh, the trials that I face, they, they can so often distract me, and I know they're supposed to work steadfastness in me, so I, I, I don't know how to move forward exactly. How should I be doing this? I have some great news for you. First, you're not alone. We are all in this exact same boat, and so is James. But James is a loving, understanding, human and predicting pastor. He knows that this is our plight and that this is hard. How can I possibly see my situation as pure joy, all joy? Again, I, I believe that it's true, but it's, it's a constant struggle for me to put the pieces together and see what James has said in actual life, like in real life. So what we need then, we need a way for us to see life the way that God sees it. If this is the way that he tells us it is, We need a way to see it the same way he does. If we could see how God sees it, then we might start to understand these pieces a little bit better. We need someone to help us make the connections so that the connections make sense and so you can rightly believe that these trials are pure joy. What we need, then, is a perspective. We need perspective or reality that no human being can give to us. What we need, then, is wisdom. We need to hear wisdom. You need a gift from God that will enable you to be perfect, to stand the test, and to believe that what you are experiencing is real, full, pure joy. You need wisdom that is given from God and God alone. But I I don't want us to glance over this real quickly and just jump to that. Who needs wisdom? What James says here, If any of you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. If any of you lack wisdom, who among us, elders included then, does not need this wisdom so that we might understand life properly and as it relates to God and his eternal plans, the trials that we undergo, the suffering, the answers that we cannot give for the stuff that happens around us? Which one of us do not need this wisdom? And so I would respond to James when he says, if any of you lack wisdom, all of us should be raising our hands and say, yeah, we all need wisdom. And so now we listen. What is this wisdom? We all need it. We all lack it. We all must then ask for it. I want to elaborate then a little bit more. What is this wisdom? What is it specifically? It's not some uh, nebulous Thing out there that's neutral and independent and it's in of itself some shining clouded uh, sage-like wisdom that we all want to attain and get to. If we just go to enough mountaintops we'll eventually find it. In fact, there's an important connection that we need to make. The Old Testament is actually pretty clear about it, but we get glaring clarity when we get to 1 Corinthians 1. And you probably know where I'm going. Verse 23 says this, but we preach Christ crucified. Notice what he's talking about, how he describes Christ, one who is suffering, one who is trials, one who is crucified. It's important for our scenario here, okay? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, that's us, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus himself is wisdom. Wisdom. It's very clear here. Wisdom is never disconnected from who God is. It's not as though God serves wisdom and uses it how he wants to and then puts it back and is like, okay, i got to abide by these laws. Wisdom is connected to who God is because he is the one who is the author of all creation. How could it be that wisdom was before God? That's heresy. So this idea here, this nebulous idea of getting after wisdom, means nothing unless it is connected to the person of God. Therefore, wisdom is never disconnected from God himself. And if you know anything about Proverbs, or if you heard the reading of the scriptures this morning in Psalms, we know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Said the opposite way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, if any of us lack wisdom, which we all do, how do we go about getting it then? I'll remind you, if you look in Job 28, which is, by the way, a fascinating chapter, Job reminds us that you can't mine for wisdom from the earth. You can't go down to the deepest, darkest coal mines and find it there. You can't go into the deepest, darkest recesses of the ocean all the way down to the Mariana Trench and find it. No man or beast knows where wisdom is contained. Even death and Abaddon have heard of the rumor of wisdom, but they don't know where it is. Job eventually finishes off in verse 23 and on and says, God understands the way to it. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Did you think that what we're talking about is something different as James is bringing it up? Are we not talking about the same thing that Job has spoken about, that the Psalms have spoken to, that Proverbs have said the same thing? That this is connected to the person and work of God most explicitly revealed in Jesus Christ. That is a connection that we don't want to miss. That then if we need wisdom, who do we need? We need Christ. He is the only thing that gives meaning, literally meaning to the rest of the world that we understand. The rest of our thoughts, the rest of our experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, the trials that you go through. That wisdom can only come through knowing God explicitly through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we realize what we need is this wisdom. We need it, God has it, therefore we are to ask for it. What does that mean? How do you ask God for things? Not hard, I'm pretty sure all my kids could tell you. Pray. Yeah, pray. It's not as though we have to go to a certain door or go to a certain priest to ask for these things from God. The New Testament tells us that those who believe and trust in God are all priests. We are a part of the priesthood of the believers. And thus we have access to the high priest, Jesus Christ, who has the ear of God, as it were, in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence, whoever stands and pleads for us there. And so we can come to him in prayer, asking of him for this very simple thing, wisdom. How often then do you pray for wisdom? When was the last time you asked God for wisdom when a trial came upon you? when you encounter these various trials. Very simply, by the way, this act of prayer is the, one of the most simple ways that we participate in this testing of our faith. We just learned this from last week, right? This idea of various trials come, count it joy, for you know that the testing of your faith works steadfastness. That testing of your faith that we're talking about, this is part of that. Pray, asking for wisdom through this. We have to know The only way to do that in faith is praying and asking God to do it. So then, brothers and sisters, pray. Ask him for this. Ask that God would give you wisdom. We're not done with verse 5 yet. Look at the basis for this prayer. This wisdom will be given to you by someone, by the great giver God himself, who does not give with a divided or insincere heart. What do I mean? Well, the, the wisdom you'll be given here is from him who is, as the text is described, generous. Now, that's not a wrong word necessarily. It's a little bit misleading for us to, I want to make sure we understand this though. Again, God is extremely generous. But to the point that, he, Paul, that James is making here, this word kind of cuts it short. We've talked about this before, the idea that words have a larger semantic range, right? And the way that we understand a word best is within its context. And so it's important for us to take a look at this word, hoplos, in the Greek, but that's nerdy stuff, who cares about that? The point here is that word that he uses can be used several different ways, not as though they're completely divergent in different areas completely. However, they have a tinge of meaning that's very helpful for us to understand what James is talking about. And so, I want you to see here that this word is not just generous. This has, it certainly can be translated generous, but it can also be translated as simple, or sincere, or singular, as opposed to double. That's important because when we get to verse 8, he's going to call someone out as a double-minded man. Our context helps us that it's to see, it's possible that he's talking about more than just generosity. It certainly is true. He is generous. But he is also a sincere, singular heart. Could it be then that James is describing God as one who gives with a sincere heart? One that doesn't give, but then reprimands it for you know, being such like a childlike and asking for things. Rather, he gives with an undivided heart, a singular heart, a sincere heart. He is one who is perfect. James is painting a picture of a God who's not divided from his insides and his outsides what he does and what he thinks versus what's actually in his heart. God then is a whole God. He is perfect. His insides match his outsides. So, this is the one who we will ask for wisdom and he is the one who will give it to us. So, very simply, ask for it. Look at verse 6 and 8, six, 7, and 8, excuse me. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. At first glance, we're wondering why James put this in here, right? He says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. Ask God who gives liberally. But then we get to verse six and we say, okay, ask in faith. So what that means then at the heart of this is what we're saying is God looks inside and sees your heart and so if you are going to pray, you better really believe, like really buckle down and believe that God will give it to you. That's what we really want to do. Uh, We don't just want to say words because God knows our heart and he really wants us to believe. So you you better really, really believe. We certainly ought to really believe. I'm not saying we ought not to. In fact, I'm saying that the context is showing us something far greater than us white-knuckling some better belief and better trust in him. But we are understanding a little bit wider here. There is a much better way for us to understand this phrase, ask in faith. Remember the context. Remember who has blood-bought the church. Remember who he's talking to, those who have experienced now the risen Christ, and they are his church. When you come to God asking for something then, in this case, wisdom, you're not coming to just another one of the many options of God's that may be able to fulfill your hopes and dreams. As though there was a room filled with many jars that represented God's, and we said, well, we'll ask these five here, and maybe they will do this to us. And we'll bring them flowers, and these ones will be able to answer us. And God is one of those on the shelf as an option for us. Rather, we are talking about the God of the universe, the God of the divine covenant with his people. We are talking about the one with which we have a sacred marriage relationship. as his church. And therefore, that's the God that we are asking for wisdom. And so, when we approach this God, it must be as one who is faithful to him. In other words, one who asks in faith, who has not broken faith, who has not gone away from this relationship. In other words, what does this mean? I mean that if you come with a divided heart, one that is not whole, one that loves God and anything else, one that loves God and fill in the blank, I don't care whatever it is, if you love God and something else, then you have not come to him in faith. You have not been faithful. You do not trust him and him alone. And that is a huge problem for God. Consider the first four of the Ten Commandments, or if you'd like to shorten it, consider the first of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Those first four commandments, the Ten Commandments, all of them have to do, no graven images before you, don't take his name in vain, nothing is to be before God if you'd come believing that God was the only per- person worth trusting, then you would know that to trust any other thing is idolatrous. Or in a relationship, it's adultery. It's spiritual adultery to come not in faith to God, the one who has given you this relationship in and of himself. And because of that adultery, God will not deliver wisdom to you. In fact, if you have a divided heart, you should expect to receive nothing from God. You are like churning water in the sea that, that, that doesn't have any place to be held and stayed in. It mixes and it sprays and it gets pulled by the tide and then it gets blown away from one area to another, tossed by the winds. This is not a word picture that I'm making up. This is right here. Driven by the wind and tossed is a double-minded man. James calls that kind of person double-minded. Double-minded. You can't make up your mind. Do you want to trust God or yourself? Do you want to trust God or maybe your job, the security of your job? Do you want to trust God or your retirement accounts that you've worked so hard to make sure you've filled up properly? Do you want to trust God or your family, that good family and friends who will always be there for you? Do you want to trust God or really smart people, scientists, philosophers, authors, bloggers, these people have spent their whole life to understanding the meaning of life? Do you want to trust God or the safe structures that are in place for all Americans to live a happy, productive, and successful life? Do you want to trust God or your insurance policies, whatever they may be? What are we trusting in? If we trust God plus anything, you get nothing. Nothing. It is not God plus something else. He is jealous for his glory and for his relationship with you. He wants it to be him and him alone. In fact, again like we said, it is a divided heart and one that is full of adultery. If we do not come in faith, we do not receive wisdom from God, and as he's already stated, not only is it not wisdom that we get, we get, we don't get anything. How then believers who do love God and trust him and want to please and know and follow him and be complete how then can I possibly come to him in faith how can I come to him in faith how do I have the proper faith then how do I do this asking for wisdom in faith since that's the right way to do it this is the part where we really get our stuff together and we really have to have strong faith right this is where we come in right this is where uh, this is where we bring our faith piece of the puzzle to it, and then God unlocks His grace to us. Right? No, it's heresy. Don't believe that lie. As though somehow you have to have this thing that you bring to Him, something good that you bring to Him for Him to unlock His grace and love and care for you. It's not what the Scriptures say. It's not what's reality only thing we have to talk about when we talk about your faith is the fact that it is the faith that you have experienced. No one else can come into your brain and flip the faith switch somehow. It is yours in the fact that you are participating in this mystery of faith. This is incredibly important. It really isn't, the true faith isn't your faith. And the idea that we claim it as our own. Your faith, that kind that recognizes that God exists, but you don't have a singular heart and you worship other things, you and I worship those other things. That kind of faith, your faith, is wishy washy. It goes from one place to the next, like a wave of the sea. Your faith isn't something that you bring to God as a part of the deal. If it were, guess what? It would automatically put us in the place of boasting. What did you do? Well, I didn't do any of the stuff that God did. But you know what I did do? I did bring my, my, my faith piece of my puzzle right there. I brought that. That's all I had to hold on to. That's what I did. That's my boasting. As if it had anything to do with you. Your boasting is so foolish. Our boasting is really you, you, you have something to boast in if you believed. You had the you had the good job of you believing that you were totally dead and like dead dry bones, and you were needed the ultimate giver of life to come and breathe his breath of life on you? Really? You're going to boast in that? Or really, you have something to boast in since you recognized that you are a pathetic, treasonous adulterer and you murdered the King of Glory and you needed the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to wipe you clean from that? Really? That's our boasting? That we did that? That we came to that recognition? Do you see how foolish it is to boast in your faith as though you did something? Brothers, sisters, sisters, don't forget what Hebrews 12.2 tells us. Looking to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't forget Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If this is not our faith, I guess we don't have to do anything then, right? If it's really God who's doing this in us, You don't have to do anything, right? Please listen. Don't ever use theological implications to be a platform for your disobedience. Let me say it again. Don't ever use your theological implications, things that you think are true about God, outside of the text, to be a platform for your disobedience. What does the text tell us? To do nothing? No. No. Since he is the author of our faith, I guess we really don't need to do anything, right? No. Ask for wisdom in faith. He commands us to ask for this. So, obey. Ask for it in faith. Knowing that God must never be robbed of his honor and glory and greatness. Knowing that faith is his gift. Uh he, I like to put it this way. He is to blame for everything good. He is the God of all good. We're going to get that actually in James, that he shows that he is every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. In other words, if anything good happened, you've got to blame God. We have no right to it whatsoever. Praise God. But on, on the real practical level, though, as we still are in this struggle, the question is still Right? How then, if, if this is so difficult for us, how then do we do this? How do we pray for faith, uh, for wisdom in faith? What does it look like to ask God for wisdom in faith? My, one of my favorite passages, I just can't get away from it, is going to help us. Mark 9. If you remember this passage, it's Jesus having this man come to him who has a son who has a demon. And his life is terrible. He throws himself in the fire. Terrible things are happening. And Jesus says this to him because he wants him to obviously heal his son. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, this is the father's response, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, my problem. I'm like shifting sand. I can't hold it together. I need you, God. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like that. Jesus requires the same thing that James requires. Why should we be surprised? Faith. It's the exact same thing. Jesus says, you must trust me and me alone. Not me plus the witch doctor plus herbal supplements. He says, me and me alone. You are to trust me. So how do we pray for wisdom? Something we obviously all need. Our constant posture or position before God is, Lord, give me faith. Asking him that he would do that work of belief and trust and faith in our hearts. This is our daily prayer and our desire for each other. Do you know that this is one of the simple things, the simplest prayers that I pray for you as members of Cornerstone Bible Church? I pray this for my family. I pray this for my friends, for my parents. I pray this prayer that God would grant us faith and repentance. These are things that only God gives. And do you think then that those who come to him asking for good things, faith will be denied? If you remember, he gives to all men sincerely. It is not as though he comes and gives this and then he kind of reprimands us for asking about it. He does not have reproach. He doesn't give us a stone or a snake when we ask for bread or fish. This is Jesus' teaching now. Same thing going on here. He doesn't treat us with contempt and disappointment for asking him for what we really need. As though I should do that to my daughter. As though i be disappointed and uh, I wish you'd grow up by now and get this stuff done on your own. He's never acting like that to us. Never. In fact, it's much the opposite. Do you know that what's going on here is great joy to God? He desires to give so many good gifts. Gifts, The chiefest of these is his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that believing him then is worship? It's not like a thing, like a key that unlocks the door, and then I'm supposed to come to church and worship. Believing is worship. It is treasuring Christ. Because what it shows you is that that is infinitely more valuable than my insurance policy, than my friends, than my family, than all the structures around me that I could possibly put my trust in. And says that is more valuable and so I will trust and believe you. When we do that, it is glorious worship to him. It gives honor and praise to him. Realizing that the God of the universe is is the God of the universe and not some petty person that some people have a crutch to to worship. This is who he is. He gives to all men sincerely. The opposite, though, is true. Uh, There are very few things that you can say to someone that are more dishonoring and offensive than, I don't trust you. That's especially true for God. How sad for one who claims to know and love God, to be unfaithful and yet suppose that he might be answered as if he's one of the many gods out there. Instead, brothers and sisters, we behold him, the sincere giver, the one who works at making us steadfast in Christ through trials and asking in faith, we know that this is then worship to him. And our lives, this, this entire experience, we talk about whole life worship. As we walk trusting Him, as you leave this place, as you do your work, as you love your children, as you go on vacation, as you come back, as you sleep resting in Him, all these things done in faith, trusting Him that He is who He says He is, is worship. That's why Paul talks about the fact that he says he wants our lives to be a living sacrifice that we live it out daily at all times as we trust and know and love him. So, my brothers and sisters, let us pray for wisdom. Let us ask as children now who come to him, knowing that he's good, trusting their heavenly father for good gifts, let us then ask for faith, for wisdom, and that he would satisfy us with himself. For surely he will. He is a good God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be praised, that we would sing your praises together and that we would live your praises together, that we would be a living sacrifice for the sake of Jesus Christ and your kingdom. God, would you teach us to pray, to love you, to know you, I pray that we would ask in faith for wisdom and that you would grant it to us. We ask as Cornerstone Corporate that you would give us wisdom to understand the trials of this life as each of us go through them, that you would answer with your wisdom and that we might treasure Jesus Christ. Thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.